You sure? <laughs> You'll have to accept that I'm recording. Now we have eight. We got eight. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to some more here in person. Let me just click. Uh, nice. Very nice. Oh, there's the doctor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was waiting for him before I said my joke, you know? All right. So good evening, everybody. Great to see you. Hopefully you've uh, seen the topic we're going to talk about tonight. Maybe that's what's um, getting your interest. No, it's only for the joke. Ah, you're only here. Oh, finally, a real fan. Okay, a real fan. <laughs> um, well, it's good to see you all, as always. So the story goes like this. It's a, it's a really old one, and it goes like this. I'm going to move this camera in at me. Um, there was once a... Uh, all, well, all stories start like this. So uh, just one moment. i got to let in a couple more people. So all stories start like this, that... Um, well, you know, before I get to the joke, tonight we're going to talk about <clears throat> Hasidism. And um, why tonight? Because tonight is the birth date of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was born on this date. And so therefore, we're going to have to tell a Hasidic joke. And a uh, Hasidic joke doesn't mean a joke that everybody is late for the punchline. A uh, Hasidic joke is actually a joke. So it goes like this. Um, a Hasidic man <clears throat> walks into a bar with this big, colorful parrot on his shoulder. And the bartender looks up and says, ah, where'd you get him from? And the parrot says, oh, him? I got him from Brooklyn. There's plenty of them there. Okay. <laughs> so that's my joke for tonight. So what is what is a chassid, really? We all know the, uh, you know, Hasidic Jews make for great documentaries and people love to... Uh, talk about Hasidic Jews, uh, make great movies uh, because of any restrictions they may have or lifestyles that they have. In fact, right now, I think the state of New York is, uh, I think the New York Times just did a hit piece on the Hasidic uh, schools over there. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. A lot of people love to explore it. So, But what is Hasidism? And so what greater day than today when it's actually the birth date of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was born, and when I say birth date, I mean the Hebrew birth date, of course. Uh, we as Jews celebrate the uh, Hebrew, uh, we celebrate the Hebrew birthdays. And um, there's actually a, another historical event that happened on today's Hebrew date, which is the 18th of Elul, and that is the Mayflower. The Mayflower left Plymouth, on Chai El on the 18th of Elul. However, uh, we're going to talk about a different revolution that happened in the year. Anybody knows what year the, the Mayflower left? 1620. Close, close. And not that I know, it just says it right here. Okay, for me. Um, <laughs> however, the Baal Shem Tov was born in the year. Anybody knows this one? Anybody's going to get close? Anybody has a guess? 1756. What? 1799. 1799. Okay. Any other guesses? <laughs> Is that your final answer? Yeah. You, you, you know, imagine 16, 1600. Uh, somewhere in the 1600s. Yes. 1698. 1698. Oh, yep, 100 yep. years before. <laughs> <laughs> yep. He was born in the year 1698. So that is the Baal Shem Tov. Just one second here. Okay. And, um, <clears throat> We mark this date, or at least Hasidim mark this day as the birth date of Hasidism and the Hasidic movement. So uh, was it interesting? Somebody has already responded, and that's a good question. 
Um, if you had to define a chassid, uh, what would you, how would you define a chassid? In other words, not just Orthodox Jews, because not all, not all Orthodox Jews are chassidim. So how would you define a chassid uh, or a chassidic Jew? Someone here wrote someone who goes above, above the letter of the law. Any other thoughts? You can put in the chat or you can uh, say it right here. And there is no wrong answer. Probably all correct. Any, any thoughts? Would it be somebody who, I mean, I know the classical definition probably at one point was based around the adherence or studying of uh, like Tanya, for instance, as far as the liturgical. Adherence to the study of the Tanya. Um, well, that couldn't be entirely correct because this, uh, that is only one specific sect of Hasidism. Not Tanya, the, uh, the Tanya, the Zohar. Somebody says kindness. Okay, good. Anybody else? Again, if somebody asked you, somebody asked you on the street, you know, what is a chassid? What would you say? I'm sure you all have a thought. Logan, any thoughts? Do you see them in New York? You see them in New York? Okay. <laughs> They've got some nice garbs, got fur hats. And it's really hot and they're still wearing it. Okay. Maybe that'll go with beyond the letter of the law. Okay. They're humble. Spiritual. A highly, spir highly spiritual. Highly spiritual. Okay, very good. Highly spiritual. Okay. Exemplify joy. Exemplify joy. Okay, very nice. So we got joy, humble beyond the letter of the law, kindness, spiritual, uh, study something. Uh, someone who studies the deeper meanings of the Torah. Okay. So we've got a lot of uh, beautiful, beautiful answers. If anybody has any other thoughts, share them now. It's uh, always great to see I always like to say in studies, studies about going from point A to point B, which means that uh, when you come into a class, you knew something and now you know a little bit more, hopefully, hopefully, or, or clarified what you already knew. So it's always good to refresh ourselves in the beginning of a class. What is it that we already know? Okay, so with that being said, the truth is that Hasidism does have a lot of elements to it, and it is hard to pin down um, a very specific idea of Hasidism. One could say they, they may be joyful, they may be spiritual, they may go beyond the letter of the law. Where does all of this stem from? And to answer that, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to discover today what is the root and the source of uh, what leads to all these things that we see on the outside, whether it's walking on the street when it's very hot and long clothing, or whether it's going beyond the letter of law, kindness, joy, spirituality. Uh, someone else wrote here, someone who seeks to make this world a dwelling place for Hashem through mitzvot. Okay, so let's start with the history. And so we're going to spend a, a good deal first on the history of Hasidism, kind of give you the era in which it started. And then that will lead us to ultimately um, what the Hasidic movement means. So I'm going to share on the screen tonight. Today's class is called Inside Out an overview of Jewish mysticism and uh, Kabbalah and Hasidism. All right, I don't know why I can't see the screen as well on my screen, but anyways, uh, so we have the 18th of Elul was the, uh, the Mayflower. We also have um, the birth of the Baal Shem Tov, right? The birth of the Baal Shem Tov, I, I missed that, in the year 1698. I forgot to mention he was born in the city of Tolst, the city of Tolst. Um, which is a little city in Ukraine, which not many people 
know about. Um, and uh, let us move on over here. So what, uh, okay. So the question of what is Hasidism has been asked many times. People have asked their Hasidic Rebbes, what is Hasidism? Because when you think about it, like we all know about it, but what is it, right? So it's, it's a great question. And in fact, as you see there, uh, it's a question that's been asked by non-Jewish ministers as well. The Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe was put in prison and they asked him, what is Hasidism? There you have another story that Tzemach Sedek, the third Chabad Rebbe was also put into prison uh, for you know trying to stand up for Judaism. And again, they, he was asked, what is Hasidism? And there have been many different answers. And um, we will get to the answer that the Tzemach Sedek gave to him at the end of the class. But really, ultimately, he asked him the question, and that's the question we want to ask, which is Judaism has been around for over 3,000 years. It's been going on for a long time. What, uh, by the way, does anybody know what year the Torah was given? So we, when we say it's 3,000 years, what year was the Torah given? What year is it now? Uh, 5782, barely, but yes. The, t the Torah was given... Huh? 3,334 years ago. Yes, very good. So it was in the year 2448. 2448. Anyways, in the Jewish calendar, 2,448 on the Jewish calendar. I always tell you, how do I know that? Because 1948 on the Jewish calendar is when Abraham was born. That's an easy year to remember as a Jew, 1948. And then 100 years later, um, Abraham's uh, son was born, Isaac. And from when Isaac was born, it was 400 years till they would leave Egypt. So that takes you to 2448. All right. Anyways, I, I think I, I repeat this uh, many times, but it's always good to uh, know it. Okay. So this is the question we have. Judaism has been around for so long. What is it um, that is different? So we need to start with uh, first with Kabbalah. In order to understand Hasidism, we need to understand the Kabbalah. Now, Kabbalah has become a very popular word. The Kabbalah, the, or today we have the Kabbalah centers. In fact, every I'm, I, I'm a chaplain in the prison system as well. Every prison I go to has a great set of the Zohar, the basic Kabbalistic books, because of this Kabbalah center. They've made it very popular. Madonna was famously in the Kabbalah center, and she had uh, holy waters or whatever it is. Um, but in order to understand Hasidism, we first need to understand Kabbalah. And also, it's a problem a lot of people have how to differentiate between Hasidism and Kabbalah. So we need to start with Kabbalah. What is Kabbalah? So the answer is, we have the Torah, the Torah, the written Torah, which is otherwise known as the Bible. And uh, that is, uh, we also have the oral tradition, which is called the Mesorah, which um, includes any of the oral Torahs, the Talmud, the Midrash, and uh, many, many different laws. And so that is typically... Um, and along with the oral tradition was also mysticism. So a lot of people do not necessarily know that mysticism was always a part of the Jewish tradition. And we'll get to that in a moment. So again, everybody knows there's the Bible, right? Five books of Moses. Everybody knows that there's an oral tradition, which includes the Mishnah and ultimately the Talmud. But there was another oral tradition that a lot of people don't know about, and that is called the mysticism, the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah. The, myst the mystical teachings. So what is the Kabbalah? What are the mystical teachings? Um, and why were they hidden for so long? So the answer is that the Kabbalah deals with the mystical. It deals with 
the concealed parts of the Torah, not things that are revealed. So whereas the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Code of Jewish Law deal with the actions that you should be doing or the stories that are in the Torah, the Kabbalah is dealing with the behind the scenes, the stories that are behind the stories. It deals actually mostly with things that are going on in heaven. And because its teachings are so deep and so sublime and so abstract, um, Kabbalah was purposely kept out of sight. It was not for the average scholar because being that they are very spiritual ideas, sometimes discussed in very physical terms because we only have physical terms to talk in, they could be taken in the wrong way. In fact, um, that is, in fact, what the Kabbalah Center has done to an extent. Now, I'm not, I'm not here to class the Bath at Kabbalah Center, but just to give an example, I recall when I was in Toronto, uh, I was a rabbinical student there, and I used to go visit uh, a gentleman uh, who was very much in the Kabbalah Center, a Jewish guy. I used to go visit him on Fridays, and uh, if I would see him, we would put on tefillin with him. And many, sometimes we would get to him and say, oh, I, I went to mikvah 310 times this morning. So there's a Kabbalistic reasons to go to mikvah 310 times, right? That's the Kabbalah, right? Kabbalistically, spiritual reasons to go to mikvah 310 times. But the Torah says clearly you should put on tefillin every day, right? But he found it more important to go to the mikvah 310 times than he found it to put on tefillin. Now, mind you, dipping in the mikvah 310 times, I assure you, takes a lot longer than uh, however long it took to put on the tefillin. But this is an idea. This is where... This is why the, 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 it was kept, the Kabbalah was kept a secret for so many years because the Kabbalah is very hard to understand. And that's why I actually meet a lot of people. I personally don't read straight Kabbalah. I meet a lot of people who read straight Kabbalah and they tell me all these ideas and how they have visions and they know things. And maybe they do. I, I don't know. I, I really don't study straight up Kabbalah because it is an esoteric study. And you really... I think you need a spiritual eye to fully and properly understand the Kabbalah. But the fact that the Kabbalah was hidden does not mean that it's not real. It was just kept hidden for specific purposes. And throughout the Talmud and the Mishnah, you will find, um, you will find some clear references to the Kabbalah, even if not discussed openly. Let's take a look over here at a text from Maimonides. Um, here they're just mentioning again that Kabbalah was limited to select few individuals uh, passed from teacher to student. And here we have Maimonides writes this. The secrets of the Torah. So again, Maimonides is not a famous Kabbalist, but nevertheless, he writes about the Kabbalah. The secrets of the Torah transmitted by small groups of elite scholars and to small groups of elite scholars. As the sages have said in the Talmud, the secrets of the Torah may only be transmitted to a person of counsel, a skillful craftsman, one who understands secrets. Only small snippets and allusions to them appear in the Talmud, Midrash, like a few kernels contained in a great many shells. When occupied with the shells, people don't even know that kernels lie beneath them. Um, and so what he's saying is that uh, the, clearly Maimonides, again, who is not famous as a Kabbalist, he actually did not write any Kabbalistic works, but he's clearly saying that the Kabbalah is a part of the Torah. The Kabbalah is a part of the Torah, but it was kept secret uh, and it was only given, as he says, to people who can understand it uh, because there was a worry about uh, getting it to the masses. So when did any of this change? So the first change starts when, uh, did anybody else see the screen sharing, by the way? Someone could yeah, I can, I can see it. Okay, you could see it. Okay, all right. So then, uh, Keturah, you got to check your, your computer. Okay. Um, 
Now, a little bit of this changed in the 13th century. I see someone wrote that over here. In the 13th century, when the book of the Zohar was discovered. Many of you may have heard of the book of the Zohar. The Zohar is a famous Kabbalistic book written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was a sage of the Talmud. So that means that the book that was found in the 13th century uh, by Moshe de Leon, I believe, uh, was actually, although it was discovered in the 13th century, it had been around, it was written originally um, around the year 60 or 50, whatever. Now I'm talking secular years. So again, it was found about a thousand years after it was written. It was written by one of the most famous Talmudic sages, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Sorry, he wrote it in the year about uh, 160, 160 BCE. So he wrote in the year 160 BCE. And it took 13 centuries until his Kabbalistic treaties came to light. Now, again, it does not mean there was no uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Bar Yochai, Yochai. Now, it does not mean that there was no Kabbalah around until that book was around. In fact, there were other books of Kabbalah written. The oldest, most famous book of Kabbalah, Sefer Yitzirah. Some people attribute it to Adam. Uh, regardless, um, it created a little bit of a revolution. In fact, there was even a little bit of tension in the Jewish communities. Mm -hmm. Some people didn't necessarily believe the Zohar was a real book, but and you can imagine why. If, if they were not somebody who was privy to Kabbalistic teachings before that, they would not believe it was a real book. Um, now, so that was stage number one. So again, so far we've had stage number one of Kabbalah was at the giving of the Torah. Moses, uh, among some of the teachings of the oral teachings was the Kabbalah, was passed down from only specific teachers to students, whereas the rest of the Torah was taught to everybody. And the next stage was when the Zohar became revealed. Then more people started becoming aware of the Kabbalah, even if not everybody started studying it. And the next stage of Kabbalistic study happened in the city of Safed. Okay, so we're going to give the history on that, what happened in the city of Safed. So it starts with the Golden Age in Spain. We're all familiar with the Sephardic Jewry. The Golden Age in Spain was actually under the Muslim rule. The Golden Age in Spain was under the Muslim rule during the uh, 10th and 11th centuries, I believe. However, as the Christians reconquered parts of Spain, um, it became increasingly worse for the Jewish people there until in the year 1391 in Spain, there was a terrible uh, Jewish pogrom, which means many Jews were killed, pillaged, and uh, many Jews were faced with the option of death or converting. And some agreed to convert on condition, sorry, some agreed to convert, but really, they were hidden Jews. And this is what where the Anusim come from, or Muranos, as they're called, the hidden Jews. So a lot of people actually mistakenly think that the Muranos or the hidden Jews in Spain started from 1492 with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, but it actually started much earlier. And as we'll see, it actually led to the expulsion. So what was happening was there were certain outbreaks of violence caused some Jews to officially convert, but not really convert. But then there were other Jews who were allowed to live publicly as Jews. And so if you, if you can imagine the king realized that having some Jews living openly as Jews in the country were emboldening those who were fake Christians. So he decided, you know, eventually he decided, all right, let's get rid of all the real Jews in this country, and that'll really weed out all, of, all the fake Christians. So that's what happened. Ultimately, in 1492, uh, there was the Spanish expulsion. Jews were 
expelled from Spain, of course, they had the option to stay and convert, uh, which never really turned out to be a great idea because there were always spies and um, it wouldn't work out really well. Many of the Jews traveled to Portugal. And unfortunately, Portugal, a couple of years later, created the same decree except worse, whereas Spain allowed conversion or expulsion. Uh, Portugal, they were only given conversion. They were not given expulsion. So if you wanted to get out, you had to escape. So so pretty bad. So again, we had, an, um, so just to give you the history, let's uh, put it up on the screen. So to recap, so again, we had the giving of the Torah. Um, and then we spoke about the revelation of the Zohar. Now we're getting into the next stage, which is Safed. But let me find my mouse. Um, I really should change the setting on this so I can do it without this. But anyways, um, here we have the Zohar. It was first printed, although it was found in the 13th century. It was first printed in Italy in 1558. And that's the first print. Um, let me... Uh, it was written in Aramaic, which of course was typical in the days of the sages of the Talmud. So here we have 1492. That's the expulsion. Um, so here you have the history that I've been telling you. In 1391, there were anti-Jewish riots. In 1478, the Spanish Inquisition started, which means they were chasing the fake Jews. Uh, sorry, the fake Christians. And finally, in 1492, they were expelled. In 1497, Jews were forcibly converted. So why is all this important? All this is important because it sets the stage for a new Jewish center. Judaism, there was a lot of beautiful scholarship that came out of Spain. Jews were leaving uh, the Spanish communities and mass, religious Jews. And so where would they go? And the answer is the uh, Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, um, based in Turkey, they were very much accepting of the Jewish people. And uh, part of the Ottoman Empire was uh, Israel. And specifically within Israel, actually, uh, people don't realize, but um, the city of uh, what do you call it? In the Ottoman Empire, the city of um, Jerusalem was not very was not very popular. Most people went to Safed. Okay, so people are going to Safed, and within Safed, now you had a large gathering of the great Jewish sages of that time, and many of those sages were mystics. So, whereas in the past, mysticism was kept with very high level Torah scholars. And so there weren't that, you never really had many people around to talk mysticism with. Suddenly you have all these Jews leaving Spain from all over the country. And many of them are, are landing in a single city. Now you suddenly have a city full of many mystics, which never really happened before in Jewish history. And so it became a mystical city. Hence today it's still called the mystical city of Tzafat, the mystical city of Safed. And uh, so you had there some great uh, mystics, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, as he was known, you had uh, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And you also had in the year 1570 came one of the most famous Kabbalists of all, known as the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria. Rabbi Yitzchak Luria was a great sage who lived from the year 1534 until the year 1572. Anybody has the quick math on that? How long was his life? 38 years. Yes, 38 years. So not a very long life, but a very powerful and impactful life. In fact, of his 38 years, he only lived two years in Safed. So only two years in a super mystical city. But uh, nevertheless, his influence on that city was very, very strong. 
and um, okay, his influence on that city was very, very strong. And uh, he believed that it, the time had come to teach the mystical teachings to everybody. He believed the time had come not to keep it just to uh, great Torah scholars, but it was a time to teach it to the masses. And he gave two reasons. One is that uh, in because of the Jewish suffering, they needed something to, to uplift themselves and the teaching of the inner dimension of the Torah would uplift them. And he said, even though there's, of course, a risk when you teach the inner dimension, people can take it the wrong way, but it can uplift them. And so it's worth the risk, number one. Number two is uh, he observed the change in the world, that uh, the world was starting to get more receptive for um, abstract and lofty ideas. And so he felt now was the time to do it. In fact, there's a very interesting statement in the Zohar itself, which coincides with what the Arizal did. The Zohar itself, as we said earlier, the Zohar written by Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yichai, one of the oldest uh, books of, of Kabbalah, um, he writes on the section of Noah. We know in the flood of Noah, it says that the waters of the flood came from both above and from below, right? Like, you know, Florida sinkhole, right? And, and people were sinking into the ground. I don't know. You know, so there were waters coming from the ground, okay? So um, maybe if it was Texas, it'd be oil coming from the ground. Anyways, so uh, there was the flood from above and fr flood from below. And the Arizal says, and um, it, it, he says in the year... In the year 5000, um, he says that the, um, I forget the exact year. No, the year works out to about 1500s, he says. Forget the exact year he writes. But he says that at that point, the wisdom will open up like the floods of Noah. And there will be an opening of wisdom from below and a wisdom from above. So what's the opening of the wisdom from below? Meaning there will be more secular knowledge in the world. And again, there will be, uh, wisdom from above, referring to the Kabbalistic uh, teachings. So, and that's what happened. We have it, you know, shortly after that period is when, you know, enlightenment and a lot of uh, great secular study came out, great scientific discoveries. And at the same time, we have the Kabbalah that came out. And when you think about it, uh, we need these two wisdoms because the Kabbalah has in, in many, many ways allowed the Jewish people to uh, feel confident in Judaism, despite the revelation of scientific knowledge and whatnot has given us a lot of um, deep meaning. Um, and so here you already see a precedent for what Arizal was saying, that now has come the time to uh, reveal the secrets of the Torah. Parenthetically, there are many, many customs that became part of classic Jewish, um, that became part of classic Jewish practice in that time. For example, the song of Lechadodi. Lechadodi is a Kabbalistic song written by a Kabbalist, Rabbi Shlomo Halevi Alkabitz. And uh, it is a Kabbalistic song, but nevertheless, it is sung by, I don't know if there's any jury that don't sing it. And um, all scholars from all stripes began to study the Kabbalah. Maybe not necessarily the, all the lay people, but all scholars. Words, whereas it used to be specific scholars, now all scholars, if anybody was wanted to be a scholar of note, you would study not only the the. Uh, um, general studies, but one would study the great uh, Kabbalistic and mystical thoughts as well. So Jewish practice at that time slowly became under the influence of Kabbalah. So let us recap so nobody gets lost. 
Uh, hopefully you're all a little bit lost, but not too much. Just kidding. Um, so again, to recap, you have over here, here you have the Rizal. This is actually where he's buried in Safed, in the great cemetery over there. You can see uh, the Ariya Kadosh and uh, <coughs> his grave is blue. That's because in the cemetery in Safed, every holy person has their grave spray, paint, spray painted blue so that you can find all the holy people. And if you, uh, okay. Um, so again, what do we have? We have at the end of the 15th century, Jews, Sephardic Jews arrive in Spain. 1570, Rabbi the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria arrives in Safed, begins teaching Lurianic Kabbalah. In 1572, we have the passing of the Arizal and his teachings are preserved by his student. And then in the 16th century, the teachings of the Arizal have now spread throughout the world. So this is all Kabbalah. Okay, so now you have the history of Kabbalah. Now we're going to have to get to the history of Hasidism. So everybody gets the Kabbalah. The secrets of the Torah were always there. It took stages till it became revealed to the world, but slowly but surely, the Kabbalah became more and more revealed to the world. If anybody has any questions before I go to the Hasidism, uh, now's your chance and uh, make it quick. Yes, Anita? Rabbi, real quick. Was there a need for the Kabbalah to be a part of the Jewish community? Like, what is that prompted them to yeah, like I said, such the, manuscripts? Right, right. Like I said, the Arizal gave his reasons. He said, number one, the Jewish communities needed that to uplift themselves. Number one. Number two, the world was more receptive for those ideas. And uh, as he explained, as, as the Mashiach is coming closer, when the Mashiach comes... Uh, the secrets of the Torah will be revealed to all. So we're kind of getting close to the Mashiach, whereas sometimes we describe it, there's a Jewish law that uh, before Shabbos, you have to taste some of the Shabbos food. I'm very careful in that when I go home on Friday afternoon, I make sure to taste everything. But anyways, uh, you know, a little bit of chicken soup, a little bit of gefilte fish, not in that order, of course. Um, but uh, so he says, similarly, now, as we're coming close to the Mashiach, we need to start to taste some of the teachings of Mashiach. And on top of that, being the Mashiach is coming, we are we can be more receptive to those teachings. They can sink into us. And like I said, I think really being at that same time scientific study came out, it really is a nice balance. Yes. Uh, I just thought, oh, I'm sorry. I just thought it was maybe there were miracles or things that were happening outside of the normal and they wanted to record these things or no. It was just. Uh, I'm not familiar that had anything specific to do okay. with miracles. If anything, they were under a lot of persecution. Yes. So. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. Ketura. Yes. Yeah, so, can you speak again a little bit more on? Um, you said that the the um, knowledge for of one, the for one, I'll always speak more, but continue. Okay. Um, then this is right up your alley. So. You, you were saying that the Kabbalistic knowledge was part of the Torah. I mean, it was given at the time of the Torah, and the oral yes. law. Was that given on Mount Sinai? It was. Or given, can you speak more about that? It, it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, along with the other teachings that he received on Mount Sinai. Okay. That's all I could say. All right. I just want to make sure I understood that and I had heard okay. that Everybody, as part of the oral law, correct? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Everybody's doing okay. Luis, they, the uh, the doctors, Don, Penny, Beth, Tipora, Esmeralda, Jake. 
Well, Are we? Huh? I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So let's move on. So if the if the um the 14th century, I always forget how to do it. 14th century means the 1300s. Yeah. Yeah. So if the fourth, so if the 15th century was really bad for the Sephardic Jewry, the 16th century and on uh sorry, the 17th century was really bad for Ashkenazic Jewry. So what happened? Uh, the Ashkenazic Jews uh, experienced a lot of different. Um, they experienced a lot of different persecutions throughout their time, and uh, that includes uh, Germany, England. They were kicked out of a bunch of times. Um, so they had a lot of bad, rough time. Finally, they came to Poland. Poland was like the promised land. Poland was great. Everybody loved it. However, in Poland, a lot of the Jews were tax collectors. That was uh, one of the things they were allowed to do to collect the taxes. And uh, the peasant and Poland at that time also controlled parts of Ukraine. <clears throat> and at that time, the, uh, the a lot of the Ukrainians uh, did not enjoy the rulership of the Polish. And at one point, there was a man named, and I can never pronounce his name, uh, Chmelnitsky, Chmelnitsky, or whatever he's called, um, Bogdan Chmelnitsky. Bogdan Khmelnytsky, a really horrible guy. And he led a Ukrainian revolt against the Polish. And along with his hate for the Polish, his hate for the Jews was doubly. And so in the year 1648 and 1649, many, many of the Jews were slaughtered, murdered, killed uh, by what they were called as the Cossacks, uh, the Ukrainian Cossacks. And it was a terrible, terrible time to be a Jew. So again, this is the year 1648, 1649. And from that point on, this really changed uh, the Jewish community. It changed the Jewish community to the point where, um, whereas before the Jews were prosperous and it was almost the promised land, as you might call it, for the Jews, suddenly it was a terrible place to be, a lot of trauma. And what the Jews had to do, uh, many of them had to start to work a lot harder. And so not, they had to put their kids to work earlier. You know, it was no more the golden era of Poland. And so as children went into, into work earlier, there became less scholarship. And so not just physically the Jews felt bad, but also spiritually, it was a really rough time because now you had only select few really genius people had the opportunity to become scholars. Let's say the one genius kid in town would be paid, but the rest were left to be simple Jews. And unfortunately, the scholars saw a threat in the simple Jews, you know, they didn't want, you know, they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't be affected by them. They, you know, eventually there came a point where many of the scholars felt greater or better than the simple Jews, just by virtue of the fact of their knowledge. And they lived a very, and the scholars lived a very ascetic life. They wouldn't deal with the simple Jews. If you look back in the ancient Jewish communities, there were actually different uh, synagogues for different professions, for different professions. <laughs> So you'd have uh, the people that work in the car lots and synagogue for the doctors. And uh, so it was a um, was a different, uh, it was a very uh, difficult period uh, for the simple Jew. The, the scholarly Jew was okay because there weren't that many of them and, and there were enough uh, simple Jews to support them. And, and it wasn't that the simple Jews uh, were not religious. They were very religious. They just could not study Torah. And it was at this time that the Baal Shem Tov appeared on the scene. 
So again, what year was the boss born in? Who remembers? 1698. 1698. Very good. So the programs were 1648, 1649. Slowly, slowly, uh, the Jewish communities went into a little bit of a, a deep faint, if you might call it. It was very difficult. I forgot to mention the other terrible thing that happened with Shabtai Tzvi. Oh. Shabtai Tzvi was a fake messiah. He gave people fake and false hope. Uh, it ultimately turns out that scholars say that he was probably bipolar. Uh, but ultimately, the Shabtai Tzvi gave a lot of people a false hope. And, and when it turned out that he was false... Um, many people felt really bad about it. And so people were uh, not, uh, people were not feeling great about themselves. Judaism was in a state of uh, a faint, as, as some people might call it, alive, but very um, weak, if you might, might, might want to call it that. And on the scene, in 1698, the Baal Shem Tov was born in Ukraine. We don't know much about the Baal Shem Tov's childhood, aside from the fact he was born in the city of Tlust and that um, his parents died when he was very young and that uh, there's a famous story that his father told him that uh, don't fear anything except for God and love every Jew with the full flame of your heart, no matter who it is. And um, so that's pretty much all we know about him, that his, his father died very young and he, he, he had these words and he was very famous for going into the forest by himself and not being afraid of any of the animals. And uh, in his early life, the Baal Shem Tov was a great Torah scholar and he studied a lot, both the, hit it, both the uh, revealed parts of the Torah and the mystical Kabbalistic parts of the Torah. And tradition has it that he was taught, as the Baal Shem Tov told us, tradition meaning the Baal Shem Tov told us, he was taught by a man called Achia Hashiloni. Achia Hashiloni was a prophet from the era of the prophets, so all the way back from the times of King David. And uh, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov said Achia Hashiloni came to him and would learn with him. And on the Baal Shem Tov's 36th birthday, Achia Hashiloni told him it was time to go public. It was time to take his great knowledge and his teachings to the world. So at age 36 is when he revealed himself. I'm just a couple of years off of that. So everybody just wait uh, just a couple of years and uh, we'll get there too. Okay. Um, and so this is the story of the Baal Shem Tov. So what did he actually do? Number one, he took the philosophical dimensions of the Kabbalah and he taught the masses in ways that uplifted them. He gave them certain Kabbalistic understandings. In other words, he was coming to the simple Jew and by giving them certain kernels of Kabbalistic ideas, he was able to uplift their lives. The Kabbalah, dealing with the soul. If he would come to a Jew, tell you your soul is really bright, really beautiful, they would feel uplifted. They wouldn't feel like a nobody anymore. Um, in addition to that, his knowledge of the Kabbalah allowed him to perform many miracles. And he was very famous for performing miracles, many, many stories, but what they're called Baal Shem Tov stories. And that's where the name Shem Tov comes from, a man of good name. He had a good name. There's a guy you wanted to go to. And so like the Arizal before him, the Baal Shem Tov used the inner dimensions of the Torah to awaken the Jewish people and um, to teach them the soul of the Torah. And what was special about the Baal Shem Tov is that unlike many other rabbis and scholars and sages, the Baal Shem Tov was a traveling rabbi. He himself to really uplift the Jewish people, he would travel all around. Many of the stories of the Baal Shem Tov talk about him getting into a wagon and traveling to distant towns to be able to reach out 
and uh, he was a real, uh, you know, what they have, um, you know, the, the real missionary, right? What they had, you know, he was he was doing missions, right? Missions in uh, missions in Ukraine, right? But of course, uh, Jewish missions. Um, so his methods were unconventional, and as you can imagine, um, he was not met with great enthusiasm by all, uh, particularly the Torah scholars of the day. And you can imagine that some of them may have had um, serious concerns after the Shabtai Tzvi, after the false Messiah. Um, but nevertheless, um, he spread out and did this, and the Balshemto's followers were called the Hasidim. Why Hasidim? Because Hasidim are people who are known in the Talmud. A Hasid is somebody who prays very long, and they were known to pray very long. So all this is to tell you history. But what is it that the Baal Shem Tov actually taught? What did he actually teach? And how does the Baal Shem Tov's teaching differ from the Lurianic Kabbalah? What is the Baal Shem Tov doing different than the Kabbalah, right? So we said Kabbalah, the Arizal want to teach everybody Kabbalah. And really the mass has never really learned Kabbalah. What did the Baal Shem Tov do that was different than Kabbalah? And so I'll give a, uh, I guess, a parable. We all know that we say life is like an onion, right? There's many different layers, many different uh, layers of reality that one can see. A, a great example is just the way a child sees the world and an adult sees the world. And a child is seeing something, but if you peel away the layer, you see something deeper that's going on over there. The casual observer always sees the outermost layer. You don't see what's going on. Somebody who knows Two people very well can tell a dynamic, a friendship dynamic, a marriage dynamic, a relationship dynamic is going on between them. The casual observer will not see it, will just read the exact words that they see. These layers of life apply in all areas of life. Um, for example, science tells us as much. Let's say when it comes to light, you can look at the light and I can say a nice light bulb, uh, an LED, bright white light will give a bright white light and a soft white light will give soft white so uh, you get a light bulb and you get light. Sounds simple enough. You, you get a candle and you light it and you get some light. However, through research, we know that light is much more than that. Light is actually electromagnetic radiation at a wavelength perceptible to the human eye. And light is something deeply complex uh, and it contains properties of both waves and particles. So that's just an example. That's light. Uh, same thing we get into atoms. So you see a table, but if you study, you can zoom in and see much deeper than that. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can find uh, all these uh, pictures of here's your banana and here's your banana as it looks zoomed in. It looks really disgusting, right? Um, so in, in every area of life, there are layers and uh, there's, a, there's a true layer. And so the Kabbalah is about getting to that deeper layer. So the Talmud will tell you what you have to do. A Jew, on Yom Kippur, you have to fast. On Rosh Hashanah, you have to dip apple in honey. Uh, blow a shofar. On uh, every weekday, you put on tefillin, you eat matzah. It tells us what you see at the surface level. What you do, what you shouldn't do. The Kabbalah tells us what's beneath the surface. Why is God asking this of us? What is going on uh, deeply? What spiritual connections are happening? And it tells us, what spiritual things happen when you blow a shofar? What spiritual things happen when you uh, put on tefillin? It tells us all the spiritual meaning behind it. However, the problem is like this. Just as the great philosopher can get stuck in the philosophy and lose uh, the, what's going on right in front of his eyes, one who studies Kabbalah can uh, be focused on a very Kabbalistic 
view of the world. Now, one could be a Kabbalist and still do the right things, but there's not necessarily a fusion of it. The, the item is almost like a, a, a side tool to you know, what you feel is happening. Um, and that really, I think, is a great example of what I, I gave earlier about the story of this gentleman who went to the mikvah 310 times, but didn't put on tefillin. He was so focused on the inner layer, he forgot the surface. He was so focused on the deeper ideas. And you have this, by the way, you have a lot of people who, let's say, no great theories. Maybe it's parenting, maybe it's behavior, maybe it's um, uh, religious studies. A lot of people who who, who can delve very deeply into, into uh, the depth behind any type of dynamic. But in the practical, they're really terrible because they're kind of stuck in the uh, theoretical. And it's not theoretical, it's real, but they're stuck in the deep idea and they're missing what's going on right in front of them. I always like to say the story. There was once a, uh, um, a man who was hired as a watchman. A man who was hired as a watchman. And uh, the, he was hired as a watchman to guard a horse. The owner of the horse asked the watchman, he says, how are you going to... Um, how are you going to uh, keep yourself awake? This is back in the day before a watchman could be very busy on their phone and make sure nothing was stolen, right? As all the great guards today, they're all on their phone. Yeah, yeah, I'm watching, I'm watching. Oh, okay, right? So the owner comes to the watch. So the watchman says, I'm a philosopher. I think of great mystical ideas. And um, okay. So he says, give me an example. He says, so he says, you know, I've always wondered, this is what I think about, is a zebra white with black stripes or black with white stripes? The owner says, wow, you are a deep philosophical thinker. You stay up all night. After the second hour, though, the owner gets worried and he comes over to the, uh, to the uh, philosopher and asks the philosopher, tell me, tell me, what are you thinking about now? He says, now, now I'm thinking about the story of the tortoise and the hare. What would have actually happened? If the hare wasn't so confident, would he have really beat the tortoise? These, these are the things that disturb me at night. And the guy thinks, wow, what a great philosopher. And he walks away. And then he comes back an hour later and asks him another question. And he tells him all these great philosophical ideas, the deep ideas that he's thinking. And finally, after the fifth hour, he comes to the watchman. He says, Mr. Watchman, what are you thinking about now? And he says, now I'm thinking about if I've been watching the horse the whole time, how did it disappear? <laughs> So there you have it. Sometimes we can get too lost in the mystical and it's a little too abstract. Or it's a very abstract idea. It's only available for deep, deep minds to really connect the abstract with the, the outer layer. And so this is what the Baal Shem Tov came to do was to take the abstract ideas of Kabbalah, to take the inner layer and show how it's really part of the outer layer. If you read the books of the Kabbalah, it doesn't really speak about the outer layer. The idea of Hasidic philosophy is to have what we, what the name of the class is called inside out, to have an inside out view of the world, to view the world from the Kabbalah, but not as a separate entity of the outer layer, to see the outer layer through that inner lens. So when you sit, uh, an example, uh, sorry, and the Kabbalah does this in many, many different levels. It'll do it in the Chumash, in the Bible, 
like we had a couple weeks ago when we gave the story of the snake. We gave the inner story of the snake, not ignoring the story of the snake, giving you the inner and outer meaning of the snake, right? We discussed, so how does a snake on a, on, a, on, a, on a pillar, how does that heal people? We discussed the deeper meaning. So the Kabbalah comes in every area of Jewish life, whether in study, the study of Chumash, the study of the Bible, the study of the Talmud, and also in our actions and our customs and the mitzvahs that we do, it gives us meaning to have an inside out look. And when we have an inside out look of the world, it allows us to interact with the world in a better way. You know, one of the things that happened over COVID is uh, some people really like see germs everywhere, right? We, we always knew there's germs around, but there's certain things, just an example, like we all knew there were germs, but like before uh, COVID, when I would have like chauffeur displays for kids, I would let them all blow the chauffeur. So we would wipe it in between with the alcohol wipe. And now I'm thinking, yeah, but they're blowing it and their spit is going inside and it comes back down. Like, I, now I just don't let the kids blow my chauffeur. You know, it's just, it's not, it's disgusting, right? We have now a little bit of an inside out look in the world. We're, we're a little more aware of germs. Some people are a little too aware of it, right? So that's where we got into earlier, where you get, you know, too crazy about it, too crazy of the inside world. You need a balance, right? That's what it's about. It's about a balance, creating a fusion between uh, the inside out view of the world. And so Hasidic philosophy does that both in the Torah and the Bible it does it in uh, Jewish customs. That's where most people know about it from, right? People ask, why do we keep kosher? Why do we do this? And, and so then we give the mystical meaning behind it. And, uh, you know, that, like when I spoke about on Friday, uh, the class of the Federation, I spoke about the, you know, the mystical meaning of Rosh Hashanah and whatnot. It gives us a deeper appreciation for Rosh Hashanah. Uh, you can study the mystical meaning of Yom Kippur. It gives you a deeper appreciation for Yom Kippur. But they're supposed to be married. They're not supposed to be two separate things. They're supposed to be married. So Hasidic, and that's why Hasidic philosophy has a great emphasis on avodah, not just on study, but on divine service and meditation, because the idea is not just to study the inner concepts and then live our life in another way, but to take those inner concepts and live with them in every single day-to-day -day life. And when you live with those day-to-day -day concepts every single day in your life, um, it will allow you to interact with the world differently. And... Um, so Hasidic philosophy does this in all different areas, giving an inside outlook. And today we're going to take three examples, three cardinal Hasidic principles uh, that help us see how and why Hasidim live the way they do and how we can live that way too. So to sum it up, what I said so far is we wanted to understand what are Hasidim. We, we gave a lot of different things that they do. We wanted to understand, so but, but what is it that's causing it? So we start off with the history, the history of the Kabbalah, and how the Kabbalah slowly became revealed. The Kabbalah is the discussion of the hidden dimension of the Torah. Then we had the Baal Shem Tov, why the Baal Shem Tov came around, and he had to awaken the masses and elevate them, and we'll see through our three topics how he elevated them. And um, ultimately, that's what Hasidism is about. The Baal Shem Tov came to the world to give them an inside-out look. And having an inside-out look at the world helps us elevate our lives and, and be more... Uh, to interact with the world in a greater way. And as we'll see, having these inside out look in the world will give us more joy in life, more passion, more spirituality, and even um, more adherence to the halacha. It elevates once you have this inside out look. So let's take a look at topic number one and how this can be a life-changing idea. So I'm going to flip a couple slides on the screen. And I realize I also forgot to turn on the AC in this room. That's why it's getting hot. Okay. Um, if you have the key, I don't know. So, all right, let's take a look at um, here you have okay, 
uh, let's skip a couple slides here. It's giving a history. We'll get to uh, the onion and the lab. Okay. Let's take a look. All right. Kabbalah, core reality. Okay. Okay. Sorry, I, I could have deleted some of these before. So let's take a look. We want to look at text number four. Okay. So this text gives us a foundational teaching of Hasidism. Just pull it open and then you press the buttons down. Yep. Oh, yep. Yep. Just press the buttons down until it gets 73. So it says like this Divine providence extends to this world as much as it does to the supernal realms. Events ranging from journey of the detached leaf fluttering in the wind to a worm slithering in a desert or in a city to a conversation between fish in the sea to the minute movements of the smallest creature found in the ocean all take place by divine providence. Now that is pretty detailed. So every little detail in life, uh, Jews, non-Jews, animals, everything in life is by divine providence. Now that doesn't take away from our free will. That's a discussion we've had before. And we're not going to go over that. But the circumstance that you're in today is by divine providence. And um, if you can imagine, how would this elevate the Jew of the Baal Shem Tov's time? Well, greatly. If you were a Jew of the Baal Shem Tov's time, feeling so downtrodden, feeling, uh, you know, suddenly we're, we're in a difficult situation. We have no money and our kids can barely study. And, and the Baal Shem are coming and telling you, there's divine providence in your life. Where your situation is exactly where God wants you. You have a special mission. How would that elevate them? And what I want to do today is also contrast that. How does that elevate us today? How many people today are walking around? Why was I born? Or some people, unfortunately, are hear from their parents that they're a mistake. Uh, how many people are committing suicide? How many people are feeling, what have I got to accomplish in this world when, when things go wrong? Um, people make When people make mistakes. Or when people are having really difficult situations, maybe selling houses. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you know, people can have very difficult situations, lots of uh, rough times in their life. And uh, it can take a toll on us. And uh, we all know that we're all heading to shrinks, right? We're all having trouble. But this one idea can be a elevating idea, seeing the world. Again, this is called seeing the world inside out. Recognizing the divine hand in every single area of life, of our lives, of every life. Knowing that God not only knows everything that's going on, but God cares and orchestrates everything that's going on. In fact, the Baal Shem Tov was one time teaching this idea to his students, and his students wanted to challenge him. So they saw a leaf falling from a tree, and they said, "Wow, well, what's the reason that that leaf fell from that tree? So he went over to the leaf, and he picked it up, and he showed them that under the leaf was a worm. And he said, this little worm was crying to God, it was too hot. So God arranged the leaf should fall on this worm and so he should be warm. But now because you asked me, he's hot again. So let me go cover him. Okay, I added that last part. Um, so again, the idea is that this is one simple way of seeing the world inside out, taking the Kabbalistic idea, but explaining it in layman's terms in ways that we can all understand, the idea of divine providence. We all take divine providence for granted, but you should know that before the revelation of the Baal Shem Tov, many great scholars who were not Kabbalists, did not necessarily believe in divine providence for everything. Many believed, and many still believe today, divine providence only applies to big events. I mean, many Jews today tell me, God is, a, you know, 
he has no time for me. He has a lot of other important things to do. He has to take care of the stock market and the Fed is going to raise their interest rate and who's going to win the presidency and who's going to win this and who's going to win that. And um, we have to understand that there's divine providence in the world. And uh, this also can help us, you know, today you have so many people to walk around really feeling like if their candidate wins, then, oh my gosh, the Messiah is here. The world is great. And if their candidate loses, everything that we have worked so hard for is going to be destroyed, right? And just take a step back. Like there's divine providence. God runs the world. You have to work the best you can. We all should. God wants us to do the best we can. But ultimately what happens is in his hands. So maybe it's going in a bad direction. Oh, that's what he wants. What can I, well, you know, we're going to do our best. But incessantly talking about the doomsday and what's going to happen and the horrible things. And, you know, do, we got to do our best and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, do our best and uh, leave, the, leave the rest to God. And uh, so that is idea number one. And again, how uplifting was this in, in, for the generation of Baal Shem Tov? How uplifting is this for us? It's hard work. Okay, the concept is easy. To live it is hard when things are going wrong in your life. When things are difficult, when the, when you feel decisions you made are really bad, when uh, people uh, make make your life difficult, when when family members, when uh, colleagues, when whatever it is, and, and we get all caught up in it, and we just have to take a step back, take a deep breath, as they say, let go and let God, right? Okay, let's take a look at second lens. Okay, second lens, second big idea. And of course, I've got to. Uh... Oh, here they shared on the screen. Okay, so I gotta show that here. They they just gave an example of the first lens. They said, you know, without the Hasidic glasses, one may think that life is a result of a series of coincidences. The core is that God is aware of all creatures and events. Each of them is required to fulfill the goal of creation. And so, therefore, when I'm looking at the world with those glasses, I understand that everything in my life advances towards my purpose. Even things that don't look so good. Okay. Text number five. Foundational teaching. Every Jew is as dear to God as an only child to parents in their old age and even more so. So the Balsantov understood how important an only child was in their old age because he was a child to his parents in their old age. The very dear child. So, but what does this mean? What is what's so foundational? What is so important about this idea? Any thoughts? What's revolutionary about this idea? What makes this so powerful? Beyond just saying God loves us, which a lot of people say. God loves us. Or, or just because, ideas. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think it's transformative because then, you know, you know that you're not just a number. <laughs> like you are uniquely important integral part to whatever is to unfold very good you, you know see, focusing on the part that you're an only child focusing on the only in other words you're an integral part and and you're just as important as the person next to you right correct yeah because each one of us is an only child yes jacob the nature of the relationship for an only child especially for parents instead of old age it's not a one-way relationship not an unconditional relationship of just parents giving to the child. It's there's, there's a level of mutualism there that the child can then not necessarily be on, on level with the parents due to the respect that it's due to parents, but it's a partnership because, you know, as parents age, 
everything. So you're saying you're saying the focus here is that they're old. In other words, that we have to take care of them. But okay, oh, not necessarily that we have to take care of them. But there's a there's a level of involvement that that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're saying as opposed to if you have many children, some of them could ignore their parents. <laughs> I hear what you're saying. No, it's a good idea. Yeah. No, you're right. As an only child, I guess you're right. At the same time that we think about how we are integral, we should think again the other way around that we are integral to God. In other words, God is really waiting on us. We're an only child, and we're the in a sense, we're the only relationship he cares about. We're the only relationship. So good, good. The last point I want to point out. So Two people focus on the word only, and that, that works in both ways. First of all, that I feel important now. It's not just because there's other people. I'm still only. And also, to God, I'm his only child, so I, I have to think about him. I also want to focus on the idea of child, the relationship of us with God as a child. You can say God loves us, but when we say God loves us as children, what that means is that there it's an inherent relationship. Many people believe our relationship with God is based on what we do. We have to do something to create it. So I meet people. I'm a, I'm a I'm, rabbi. I'm not so Jewish. I don't keep X, Y, and Z. I'm not so Jewish because I don't put on tefillah and I'm not so Jewish. I don't keep kosher. And I tell everybody, you are as Jewish as Moses. Can't become more Jewish than Moses or less Jewish than Moses. Either you're Jewish or you're not, right? You're 100%. And, and so what that means is, and I always love this line, we don't uh, become Jewish by doing mitzvot. Because we're Jewish, we do mitzvot. It's not the mitzvah that creates our relationship with God. It's because we have that relationship, we want to do something for him. That's the way it should work around. We should feel so much connected to God. I'm his only child. I want to do something for him. Don't start the other way around. That my relationship is only based on if I do something for him. And if, like I've said many times, if you read the Bible, and I spoke about this in a couple other classes, one may come to the mistaken notion that it's only when I, when I, when I do the commandments that God loves me, otherwise he hates me, and he talks about destroying me and everything. And again, we had a class about that. And it's, I think I recorded it. I hope I did. You can find it on my podcast somewhere. I don't remember what I said then, but I think I gave a good answer. <laughs> but regardless, I remember a little bit about what I said. But, um, but the Baal Shem was teaching us there's a bond between us and God that exists from the moment we are born. And again, how does this elevate the people of his day? Again, the idea that they're an only child. They suddenly don't feel inferior to other Jews. They feel important. They feel... There's something that they can do with their lives. And they don't, and they also feel that whether they're scholarly or not doesn't make a difference. God, just like you love a child, when they do their best, they understood. I don't have to be a great scholar. God will love me when I do my best. I don't have to be that person. I don't have to be that person. God will love that person. He'll love me. In fact, he loves me even when I don't do my best. But he desires that I do my best. Just like a parent wants the best for their children. God gives us a manual, which will give us the best way to uh, live our life. And a perfect uh, example of that is David. I mean, he certainly, he certainly stumbled more than once. And yet, you know, he was got beloved. I mean, does that have anything to do with the fact that your son's name is David? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, Actually, it does. I know, I know. <laughs> but the other way around, my name, my son's he's, name he's is an David only son. He's an only son. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. So, and, and so how does this uplift us today? So first of all, as far as it pertains to outreach, now you understand why Hasidic Jews, Chabad, which of course takes very much the idea of Hasidism, will reach out to every single Jew. It's not necessarily about creating big organizations. Why does Chabad open up in Aruba and in Barbados 
and in St. Lucia, and in Vietnam, and in the Kong. Huh? They want a vacation. So yeah. you have good vacation spots, or, or, right? Or, or uh, Azerbaijan, okay? Armenia, they're at war too, right now. So uh, why do they go there? Because we don't view anybody as small, as little. As uh, there are a couple famous stories. Somebody once came to the Babich Rebbe and told him, Rebbe, I started a uh, minion for Jews with no background. And so the Rebbe says, what do you mean a Jew with no background? How could a Jew be with no background? They have great ancestors. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're all special. There was another story in um, the one time the, uh, the Rebbe sent a messenger to Corsau, the island of Corsau, the ABC island of Corsau. And, and um, he met a Jew there and he uplifted the, the Jew that was living there. And uh, the Jew one day, wrote a letter to the Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, thank you for reaching out to a small Jew in Corsal. And the Rebbe said, there's no such thing as a small Jew. We may view ourselves as small, but we have to realize now putting these two ideas together, divine providence and that we are an only child. Nobody's smaller or bigger than the other. Just because one looks like they have a bigger role, we all play an integral role. And so again, this uplifts ourselves again. We should never look at ourselves as our actions are inconsequential. Whether we are a doctor or a lawyer, or we're retired in a nursing home, or we're a rabbi, or we're um, a rabbi in uh, in the New York or in Palm Harbor, right? Or whether you are uh, what you know, you're a child or you're an adult. It doesn't make a difference. You're all an only child to God, and it's real. God views us as an only child. It's not nice words. That's how God views us. He views us inside out as an only child. What does it mean, only child? Only child means you're not dispensable, right? Some people, right? That's why only children are precious. But really, anybody who has children really view them as indispensable, hopefully, right? They're all indispensable. One doesn't replace the other, right? But God views us each as indispensable, as an only child. And so we have to remember that we are an only child. And so that uplifted the Jew in the Balshemto's time, how special they were, and that uplifts us today. Especially today, when how many of us feel like, you know, we didn't grow up with enough beauties and we would have loved to have a lot more. Or we may feel, what contribution can it really bring to the world? And God says, no, you're an only child. Yes, Anita. I just, um, I'm just tying it all in where that, uh, which I wanted to take a picture of it, but then the slide went off. Okay. Uh, that there, it's okay, Rabbi, don't worry. I kind of remember it. Where... Okay, there's two things. The child is only child, and he and the child has old parents. That well, means that well, right. You wanted to get what we said before. We said first of all, we're an only. I child. don't know if it was said, but this is how I'm. I'm. I see it as someone who starts. Um, who he grows up to be lives their life a little bit self-centered, and where Hasidim and the Baal Shem Tov uh, all all this in a series wow. is an outward reaching out instead of being a self-serving person. Got it. Got it. I, I hear you That's saying how right. I see it. Right. An only child can be self-centered. The difference yes. here is that I know that everybody else is also an only child of God. So I want to reach out to them too. So it's not. And that's because that's our nature. Good. I mean, it's not, it's, it's an, not, it's not going to be self-centered. Yes, we do have five minutes left. I know usually I do uh, hour classes, but today's, you know, an hour, 45 minutes. I have to longer, right? Um, 
So here is the final, final thought, the final third lens. Uh, and this is related to the last one that we're going to share today, but let's go to text number six. And this is, okay. Again, those were the three uh, paradigms that you have on the screen. Without, we think that, generally we think that our identity is based on our actions. We all judge ourselves by what we've done lately. Uh, that Kabbalah tells us that our inner personality is pure. We have a holy soul. And the Hasidus tells us that uh, that is true even where we are now. We just have to uncover it. Anyways, okay, let's get to number six. So number six is um, the Alter Rebbe. Skip two lines because the beginning just tells you where it's, where it's printed. The Alter Rebbe was taught by the Tzaddik Rebbe Mordechai who heard it from the Baal Shem Tov. A soul comes down into the world and lives for 70 or 80 years for the purpose of doing a favor for another Jew. A physical favor and especially a spiritual one. So what's important about this? One of the pillars of Hasidism and Hasidic philosophy is uh, loving a fellow Jew. And, in other, and, and what's important about this is many people think, well, we need to love another fellow Jew because it's a mitzvah in the Torah, right? So just to give you an idea, there's no mitzvah in the Torah to believe in God. Why? Because there's no Torah without belief in God, right? Belief in God is the core of Judaism. So there's no mitzvah. You need to believe in God. Without belief in God, there's no mitzvahs, right? However, one may say, so that's a core of Judaism, believing in God, but treating a fellow nicely, doing a favor for another, is a detail of Judaism. And the Baal Shandu said, no, it's not just a detail of Judaism, it is a pillar of Judaism. He taught us that, um, and why is it a pillar? The reason is, because we're all down here for a collective mission. And in fact, he said that our souls are bonded. He explained it based on the Kabbalah. We are actually one soul that's split into many different souls. So we're actually one body operating. The Jewish people are really one person operating our mission. Some people are the hands, some people are the head, some people are the feet. And so the Baal Shem Tov is teaching us that loving a fellow as ourself, the, the mitzvah of Ahavat Yisrael, loving a fellow Jew, is not just a feature of Judaism, but it is an important pathway to God. To love and, ha- and to ha- love and have a relationship with God, you have to love as children. And, and this was so important, as you can imagine, the Baal Shem Tov's time, where so many great scholars were so caught up in their fervor of God, they were separating from the masses. They were so caught up in their spirituality, they weren't reaching out to others. They wanted to protect themselves. The same thing happened when a lot of the Jews, unfortunately, some even Hasidic Jews, moved to America. When they came from Europe, they came to America, they were afraid of being affected by the local population. And so what did they do? They separated. They built insular communities. Even, unfortunately, some Hasidic communities. They lost these teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. However, that's why Chabad said, no, Judaism without caring about our fellow Jew is not Judaism. A pillar, you cannot love God, cannot say that I care about God without reaching out to God's children, without reaching out to his to our fellow Jews. And um, so you can't have one without the other. And so that uplifted, again, in the times of the Baal Shem Tov and today as well, where we cannot ignore our fellow brethren. We have to go out to them. We cannot just decide, well, I'm okay. I study well. I do well. 
you know, we print every week uh, stories in the, in the synagogue. This week was a story about a, a rabbi, Sarah Bransky, who was a rabbi in Melbourne for many years. And uh, he would teach for like 11 hours a day. And like he, he wanted to study himself. And the rabbi kept telling him, look, there's nobody else in Melbourne who could do what you're doing. Nobody else there that can teach. So you don't have a lot of time to study for yourself. So you won't have a lot of time to study for yourself. Nobody else can do what you're doing. Reach out to others. Whereas some people have the idea. And um, um, some people have the idea that, no, we have to, um, we have to uh, focus on our own spirituality, our own study of Torah, love of God. Now, I don't want to put anybody down, but I was actually listening to a, a podcast recently of a, of a famous rabbi who was not Hasidic. And he actually said on air, he was asked the question, what would you prefer? Would you prefer creating uh, five, um, you know, religious people study Torah all day or 500 people, but not necessarily, you know, through study of Torah. And he says, I would, I would pick the five uh, because it's, it's a view of the world. It's a different view of the world. And by us, we view um, the deep divine reality. We, we look at the world inside out. The deep divine reality of every single Jew is uh, that beautiful godly soul that's inside of it. That special soul that actually bonds us and unites us. And um, therefore, we cannot have a Judaism without caring about one another. And so the Baal Shem Tov had to bring that message to his people in his time because that was a real problem. And we have to bring that message today. That's why, as the Rebbe used to say, it's not just for the rabbis to reach out to others. Every single one of us has an influence on people around us. You have today in class, you have uh, two great people here today, uh, Beth and Luis. Beth brought Luis. You know, she said, uh, if I know of something, I'm going to teach something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the idea. It's, we don't want to keep anything for ourselves, just my spiritual journey. Because you cannot have in Judaism, the Bhagavad says you cannot have a spiritual Judaism, a spiritual journey in Judaism without another person. God will, God does not like that. It's not his, not what he's seeking. Because if you love God, you have to love his children, his only child, especially. Um, and I'm going to end off. So those are the three pillars of, uh, three major pillars of Hasidism. But we can find this in many, many other areas. Again, it's all about looking inside out. And when we look inside out, it changes the way we look at life. So that's why the Hasidic Jew ideally will reach out to others. That's why the Hasidic Jew will be spiritual. That's why the Hasidic Jew will wear a hot clothing on a, on a, a, you know, on a summer's day because they don't view it as hot. They, they're, they're living in this physical world through the spiritual lens. It doesn't feel hot. It feels, it feels the warmth of Judaism. That's why a Hasidic Jew will love to... Um, will have joy because despite their hardships, if they're really living the Hasidic lifestyle, if they've worked on themselves, again, I'm not saying every Hasidic Jew is up to there, but the ideal Hasidic Jew, if they uh, internalize the messages of Hasidism, they see God in everything that's happening. There's only joy. God is everywhere where he turns or she turns. God is everywhere where we are. And so there's joy. When you can see the world through an inside out lens, we can have all those things that people said earlier, a more spiritual life, uh, we don't we we look at the world and we see the world, but we see the world in a different light. We see the world for what it really is. We see the same world, but we see the world for its spiritual reality. We're not ignoring the world, but we're seeing the real reality of the world. That's why I always say, um, why when people ask why is it important to study Hasidism or Hasidic philosophy or Kabbalah to an extent, but really Hasidism, because I don't study Kabbalah straight. 
is who doesn't want to see reality? Uh, when we look at the world without the view of Hasidism, it's a dark world. It's, it's a, a dog-eat-dog world. It's a world of pain and suffering and uh, things always going wrong and inflation keeping on rising and, and interest rates going up and, and, and people can't buy the houses they want and people can't get the apartments they want and la bad landlords and, and uh, terrible bosses. It's a dark world, right? It's a dark world. And uh, when we can view the world through the inner light, uh, when we, and that's why it's important to study Hasidic texts. It could be the Tanya, it could be other texts that can help us see the world inside out. That's really what it's all about. So if you came to class, what does Hasidism do? It's like this. Let's you view the world inside out, not ignoring the reality, but seeing the reality of reality. And when you see reality of reality, all those benefits that we talk, that Hasidim have, that many people spoke about, spirituality, joy, happiness, uh, kindness, we can all be Hasidim. We don't have to wear the black hat. Hasidim is a way of life. It's a, it's a, a way of living, seeing the world inside out. It requires both study, but not just study. It requires not just the abstract study, but being able to incorporate it in our life. As they, as they gave a grid line in here. Practicality is the world of the masses. Philosophy is the world of the mystic. When philosophy meets practicality, that is where Hasid lives. Philosophy and practicality. We want to live both in the philosophy and the practicality. Bring that philosophy, live in our practical life. So my message today on the birthday of the Balshemto, study these ideas that the Balshemto taught, but more important than studying them is viewing the world through those lenses. So when you see that person that bugs you, See their inner soul. Understand that their outer external trappings, their 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 trap, their their characters is hiding on their inner soul. And so, even when I they bug me, I, I still love them nonetheless, and I'll try and help them in any way I can. Even and sometimes I can't, but I don't get caught up in their mishigas, as they say, right? And uh, the same thing is in any area of life, uh, whatever's going wrong, see the world in an inside-out way. Um, and that'll help you live happier, more spiritual, more joyful, more inspired and energetic Jewish lives. And that's my story for today. And I thank you for joining. And I'm going to stop the recording. And I yes, want to yes, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I want to let everybody amazing, know. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, that was phenomenal. I <laughs>